Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. In my last recording, I had finally made it back to the old farm, Masitwi Farm. And on that trip, one of the things that really sticks in my mind was the silence. Now, I might have been imagining it. I really don't know, because it was quite traumatic. But I wasn't prepared for that silence, and I'll tell you why later. The silence was partially because it was that time of day in Africa. But uh, thinking back, I now know it was largely because of the total lack of industry. There was just nothing going on. There was a feeling of inertia, time suspended. I don't think I ever recall the place being so quiet. And it seemed, and again, I say I might be imagining it, that even the bush doves had been silenced. But, you know, I strongly suspect that all their eggs had been eaten. Who knows? So in this podcast, I'm going to chat about the sounds of Africa. The Situi was as remote as farms go, but never silent. Farms in Africa always ring to the distant sounds of African voices. That's how I remembered it. seemed so loud to me in a good way. It's something I absolutely love and really miss about Africa. Anyone who's lived there, in the bush, I mean, and I can't vouch for people living in the city, but anyone who's lived there, I think, will agree with me. You see, the, the sound of Africa for me isn't the warbling of the bush doves. Well, look, it is the warbling of the bush doves and the cackling of the guinea fowl. They certainly play a part. But really, for me, it's the fact that from dawn until dusk and late into the night, especially on a Saturday, you can hear Africans at work, at play, over the cooking fire, washing by the river, hoeing their sweet potatoes, walking along the road with a bundle of sticks on their heads. It's always audible, and it seems to come from miles away. It's a, it's a deep, resonant sound that carries for miles, particularly the African men, it seems. They'll shout at each other from their feet away, even when just asking for directions. My brother, of course, has picked up some of these traits. 
and he shouts, but that also could be because he's deaf as a doorpost. But it's not just the men. Two women thumping mealies in the mortar can be synchronized in their chatting between thumps that for some reason can be heard two kilometers away. The impatient wailing of a baby plucked from his mother's milk-filled bosom will shatter the solitude during your afternoon siesta. I love it. Perhaps I'm mistaken, but this is how I remember it. These are the sounds you awaken to, and they're the last sounds you hear at dusk as you pour yourself a beer on the veranda before the night chorus of frogs and crickets takes over. The African voice has a rhythm, a timbre, and out in the bush it seems to be part of the fabric of nature, one with the bush. Our staff compounds were often situated conveniently near a river, but far enough away from the house for privacy, perhaps as far as one or two miles away. This, of course, was for our privacy, not theirs, naturally. Yet this distance meant little on a Saturday night after the Chibuku lorry had paid them a visit depositing a 44-gallon drum of crude millet porridge-like beer, most of which would be demolished by Sunday morning. During the day, the voices were mainly that of women and chimarenga songs and mbira music blaring from their radios. Oliver Ntukudzi, Thomas Mapfumo, the Zutu brothers, Afrofusion, Afrobeat. God, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that music back then, but it was part of our lives. Throughout the night, we'd hear the laughter, shouts, hoots and catcalls, and of course, always the tom-toms. Where I suppose some kids in American TV shows went to sleep with a white noise gadget hissing in the background and a pretty rotating lampshade. We went into blissful sleep, lulled by the distant rhythms of the drums and dreaming of foreign lands while clutching Robert Louis Stevenson's A Child's Garden of Verses. Ironically, two decades later, these very tom-toms would return with the war veterans. And this time, they were anything but blissful. But more of that later. Another less welcome sound on those farms was that damned telephone. It was a party line, which we had well into the 1990s. Some days, the ringing just never seemed to stop. Back then, we had a heavy, black, unwieldy Bakelite telephone screwed onto the wall with a crank-action bell. Nothing too unusual for the 60s and 70s, I suppose. But this was the turn of the millennium. The party line comprised of something around about 10, maybe even more farms, all connected to the same line. And overseas calls had to be booked through the telephone exchange in Mbukwi's village and might take days to be put through, which, of course, immediately put pay to any travel plans you had, as you had to wait around for the bloody call. 
Now a little aside from those women working the telephone exchange, let me tell you, they knew all about our business and might let slip at the country club the next week some little titbit that only they could possibly know. And how is your sister doing, Libby? So awful, that business, wasn't it? <laughs> now, more potatoes? My nonplussed mother would look at the dame, thinking, how the hell did she know that? No, thank you, Muriel. I'm on a diet, my mum would say, giving the plump Muriel the once-over. They could, of course, be of great service, those old biddies, by informing persistent callers. The woods have gone away to Byra. Please try again in ten days' time. Of course, instantly leaving your home open to theft. During the war, the ability for total strangers to listen into your phone call would take on a much more sinister connotation, and we grew up learning to make conversations quick, concise, and never gossip. Looking back, this was slightly naive, considering the war was lost in the kitchen anyway, not on the phone. I mean, most, if not all, kitchen staff listened in on conversations taking place at breakfast or lunch. Who better to blend into the furniture than a servant, trusted, loved almost, and certainly virtually a member of the family? Not to mention someone with a command of English far better than we possibly ever could have guessed. The idea of a party line, of, of people listening in, instilled in me a hatred of phones. Even 35, 40 years later, I find myself glancing at my watch when a friend or colleague calls just to have a natter. Oh, get on with it, I think. Tell me what you want and bugger off. Party lines may have been a security risk, but holy moly, did they keep the neighbors entertained. Bored housewives, not to mention the odd farmer, might sit on the phone listening into other people's calls. One could imagine them filing their nails with a cup of tanganda tea perched on their lap, taking time out in an otherwise dull day to gossip to other equally bored housewives. And do you know, Libby, she ran off with a farm manager one could audibly hear a gasp from the other end of the ether. Now, I wonder who that could be listening in, my mum might say in a stagey whisper. I expect that bit of gossip will be around the club by Thursday. A sudden click would follow, and everyone would roll about with laughter. Some eavesdroppers were busted by the sound of their lawnmower, Oh, are you mowing the lawn today, Sally? No, Libby, I thought that was coming from you. No, not me. I suppose some ghastly bitch is listening in. Click. I don't want to go on too much about phones, but I think they did seem to be central to our lives. All farms had their own ring. You see, all phones back there had a crank handle. Not a cranky handle, but a crank handle. 
Our number was Mbukwe's 1602, and the 02 meant that our call was two longs. That's two long cranks of the handle. Tring, tring, not tring, tring, or tring, tring, tring. Well, have you got it yet? It's like bell ringing from hell. My brother's number was Mbukwe's 1612, so this meant he had the somewhat complicated one short and two longs. That's tring, tring, tring. One poor family had the hideous 1623. Everyone could hear all our rings and know that the call was for the Wood Senior, Woods Junior, or the Harringtons, or Girdlestones, and so on. Jesus, as I've said, some nights it was like the bell-ringing society from hell, what with all the bloody trings and trings and trings and whatnot. If someone was away from their phone, it just might ring and ring, driving everyone crazy. And God forbid anyone who called after lunchtime when the entire farming community was having a kip. Eventually, my father would pick up the phone and bellow down to the hapless caller, The Harringtons have gone away! Stop bloody ringing! But for the most part, it was just a way of life, and we hardly noticed the ring unless it was our own. This would very often drive guests from town or anyone abroad absolutely nuts. Is anyone going to answer that phone, they might gasp. We would look up surprised, realizing the phone had been ringing for 10 minutes, and we hadn't even noticed, because it wasn't our ring. If you wanted to use the phone, you just picked up the receiver and asked, Line clear! If someone on the other end said, sorry, engaged, then you would put the phone back down in the cradle and wait for a short ping. As soon as you heard the ping, you would rush to get to the phone before someone else got there. God damn Christ, what the hell do these crazy women talk about? My dad would roar after he had been waiting for ages to order a spare part and would keep just missing his turn by a ball hair, or as it was, a tring. Of course, it wasn't so surprising that we used the telephone sparingly, to say the least, and only for utterly essential situations. My mum had an intensely annoying way of getting out of long conversations by always saying, well, I had better go. This must be costing a fortune. What do you mean, mum? I'm the one calling you. I know, but still. But what do you mean, still? Well, you know what I mean. These calls are expensive. But I'm the one paying, and I haven't even had a chance to talk to you yet. God, this is so frustrating. Don't you want to speak to your son? Of course I do, but it's a, it's, well, look, it's a bad line anyway. Anyway, what? Well, by this stage, I've even given up or lost interest or forgotten the story I was about to say. Okay, Mum, take care, love you, and speak to you next week. Don't go spending all your money on those calls. Mum! 
Another sound synonymous with life on the farm was our lighting plant, or generator. Modcons were few and far between. The lighting plant, essentially a massive thumping, coughing generator housed in a brick outhouse down the hill, was the center of our universe at night. Not just lighting our home, but powering the security lights and stove and other appliances. Once, when my young cousin Mark was staying, he went to get something from my mum's side of the table and flicked the rather ominous black switch next to her bed, immediately plunging the whole house into darkness, a darkness only Africa can provide. The lighting plant would chug all evening and when switched off, would slowly die, a pall of darkness sweeping from room to room like death seeking out his victims in some B-movie. The home was immediately engulfed in a deafening silence, not even the crickets or frogs making a sound. <sighs> Nighttime in Africa is as dark as Hades, and suddenly through the blackness, a voice would roar. Who the bloody hell has turned off those lights? A lot of panic and fumbling around for a torch or paraffin lamp would ensue. We simply never had a torch nearby, and there would be lots of fumbling of matches, most of which fizzled into nothing, Rhodesian lion matches being made of some non-combustible ingredient like clay or ivory just to piss everyone off. Condo or Fred would then have to go down the hill to crank the monster back into life. Time stood still. Young minds filled with terrifying thoughts about cobras, scorpions, or any kind of horror that might creep out of the nearby bush. What the bloody hell was that? One kid would screech. It's only my foot, you twit, another would say. No, it wasn't. I swear it slithered. Oh, bugger off, you weed. Magically, a chunk. Oh, crap. Who the hell is that calling now? Conda, where are the matches? Then slowly, a blue-white light would flood the room. The black-and-white bush TV would pop back alive, the lights flickering briefly before bathing the rooms in light. The night chorus would resume and life settled back down to normal. Now, of course, before I finish, I cannot leave you without mentioning the, well, the elephant in the room. I mean, the sounds of an African farm 
are what inspire me. But the sounds of Africa down on the Zambezi, well, they're a different story. Every year, my dad took us kids down to the Zambezi Valley on his hunting camps. They were rudimentary, remote, and totally, utterly wonderful. And at night, we would lie on our camp beds under the Milky Way and listen to the hippos down on the sandbanks, the hyenas and jackals scrapping over carcasses by what we called the boneyard, and the elephants browsing along the riverbanks, and never forgetting the king of them all, the lion. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.